You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. Let me read these words over you this morning. This is from 1 Peter chapter 4. We are continuing on in our sermon series called Exiles in Hope from the book of 1 Peter. Peter writes these words in verses 12 on down through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, then what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust that their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Pray with me and let's ask our Heavenly Father to speak to us as we cast our eyes, our minds, and our hearts upon his word. Father, as we open your word, I'm so constantly reminded of the disciples, the disciples who lived face-to-face with Jesus, who walked with him for several years, who heard his teaching come out of his very lips, who saw his miracles. And yet after the resurrection... After those many years, we are told that it took Jesus opening their minds to understand the scriptures truly. God, this isn't because you have hidden yourself from us. It's not because your word is a mystery that we need to unlock or unfold. It is because your word is meant to be seen and consumed and celebrated with you. God, because what we want is not just to hear an echo of your voice, but to hear your voice. And so, God, this morning as we look at your word, as I proclaim the truth of Scripture, God, would it be you that we encounter, you that we taste and see and know are good? Father, would you do that for us this morning? We love you. Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, over the last six months, my 14-year-old son has been recovering from ACL surgery. Uh, He tore his ACL back in June, right as we were getting ready to move here down to Texas. And as we've been going through his recovery, it has brought to mind for both me and my wife, who have both had multiple ACL tears, that my kids have terrible genetic knees, apparently. I don't know what happened. I don't know what we did that the Lord decided to just kind of make those brittle. But it's brought back a lot of memories 
of our recovery when it comes to that. Uh, the most uh, kind of clear picture, and honestly the most traumatic picture for me, is the first time I tore my ACL. I was 17 going into my senior year of high school, and just before our first game in football, uh, I collided with another one of our players. He hit me on the side of my knee, and I heard what sounded like a firecracker go off in my knee. And so several weeks later, here I find myself in the hospital preparing for surgery to replace my ACL and repair it. The problem happened not necessarily before or during the surgery. The problem occurred after the surgery, which is when I contracted a staph infection. And so about a day after my surgery, I found myself back in the hospital with a 103-degree fever and a knee that looked like it was on fire and filling up rapidly like that girl in Willy Wonka that turned into a blueberry. And so I ended up in the hospital for a few weeks as they were trying to get the staph infection under control. And the one moment that is most clear to me was on the morning of my 18th birthday. I was lying in the hospital bed, and my dad walked in, and he said, Son, the doctor said he needs to drain your knee. And I said, What does that mean? And he said, It's not going to feel good. A few moments later, as if he was walking in with the worst birthday present ever, the doctor came in with a spinal tap needle. If you've never seen one of those, imagine your greatest horror and add an inch or two to the needle. It was several inches long, and the doctor said, listen, at this point in time, your knee keeps retaining fluid. We've got to get the fluid out of there in order for the antibiotics to continue to work well and to release some pressure. And I said, are you going to numb it? And he said, it won't do any good. And so for the next few minutes, my father, with his own hands, had to hold me down as the doctor inserted this needle into a knee that already, just from having the wind blow on it, was in incredible pain, as he put this needle in and retracted this fluid. It was probably, even to this day, the worst amount of pain I've ever felt. The only thing that made the situation bearable was that even at the age of 18, I understood that I was a patient. A patient under the care of a physician who had taken an oath to do no harm and in fact to seek healing for me. And I was a son. A son being held down by the arms of a man who had given his life to care for me. Now, those truths didn't make the needle hurt any worse. It didn't make the physical pain any less. But if I had no concept of being a patient or being cared for by a doctor, if the man that was holding me down was a stranger that I knew nothing of, while I would feel the same amount of physical pain, I would also feel despair and fear and panic and uncertainty and confusion and a sense that this suffering was at best meaningless or at worst was being inflicted upon me on purpose. But I did know that I was being cared for. And I did know that I was being held by my father who 
loved me. See, our identity does not change our circumstances, but it radically changes how we experience those circumstances. And perhaps there is no place that this is more true and obvious than when we experience suffering. J.I. Packer, a theologian, writes this in a book called Knowing God. If, if you're new to the faith or if you've never read the book or if you've read it a long time ago, I, I, I recommend go and read this book, Knowing God. And in, in there, as he talks about who we are, he says that every person and every Christ follower needs to ask ourselves three questions. One is, do I, as a Christian, understand myself? This is why we have times of confession, to be able to look inward and confess and recognize with our Father who we really are and where we find ourselves. Do I understand myself? Second, he said, we must ask ourselves, do I know my real identity? And finally, if I know my real identity, do I understand my real destiny? The book of 1 Peter, if I'm being completely honest, has been tough to preach. See, one of the unique things about preaching is that the Lord in his kindness doesn't allow us just to mentally agree with the truths that we are proclaiming. Because the Lord's not just after our minds, he's after our hearts. And so while it would be easy to stand up here, maybe not even easy, I should say easier to stand up here in what has felt like week after week after week to say, hey guys, you know what we're going to talk about today? Suffering. Aren't you glad you came? But it's more than just saying it. The Lord wants me and he wants you to believe it. To believe that suffering really will come and to believe who he is in the midst of suffering. Paul has in some ways laid out what I would call a theology of suffering for us. And listen, this Christian life demands that we have a grasp of suffering, of why we suffer, of what is happening when we suffer, of what our hope is in the midst of suffering. And today, Peter is giving us a summary of all that he has taught. And in it, he points us to four identities that we have in the gospel and how ultimately those identities change, transform our suffering. Here are the four identities we're going to hopefully quickly walk through. First, the identity of us as beloved, our identity as beloved. Second, our identity as Christian, our identity as Christian. Third, our identity as the household of God, as the household of God. And finally, our identity as the creation in the hands of a faithful creator, creation in the hands of a faithful creator. I will warn you, I am long-winded when I have three points, and today we have four. Pray for yourself and pray for me. Let's start with the first identity Peter introduces us to. That is, we are beloved. Peter begins in verse 12 of chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening 
to you. Peter begins this passage by mixing, quite honestly, two subjects that are typically mutually exclusive in our mind, love and suffering. Peter begins by making it clear that the people that he is speaking to, that he is referencing, that he is writing to, are not forgotten about. They're not unimportant. They're not expendable. Instead, they are dearly beloved. The the church, the, the bride of Christ, as we are called, the people of God, are oftentimes referred to in the New Testament as beloved. And while Peter is certainly expressing that this group of people, these believers, the church, are loved by him, I don't believe he's primarily talking about a horizontal love. I don't think he's talking about love from one man to another. I think he's speaking of a vertical love. There is no my in the Greek. Peter does not call them my beloved, but in fact, he states a truth that they are the beloved. They are beloved by God. Let me stop and let me just ask this question. I remember uh, when I was younger, I was rebellious. That sounds like a politically correct word that I could use of my childhood. And I remember one time I was riding the bus and coming home and I got into it with a friend and there were words, maybe some flailing of arms that no one seriously would call a punch, but at least it looked like there was a fight. And the bus driver, as I was exiting the bus, told me, you can't ride the bus tomorrow. And I thought to myself, whoa, One, that means I don't have a way to get to school, which means two, I have to tell my parents that I've just been grounded from the bus. So I came home, in my mind I thought, fantastic, it's just my mom at home, I'll tell her. So I said, mom, there was an incredible mix-up on the bus, and under some level of confusion, it was decided that I should not ride the bus tomorrow. And my mother said to me, great, wait till your father gets home and tell him. And I told her, there's no need. You are capable of figuring this out with me, mother. No, I didn't say that. That would have been worse. So what I did, I remember distinctly, I went upstairs and I laid down on my carpeting in my room. And for like an hour, I just waited. I waited for the click of the front door when my dad would come home. I waited for the sound of his steps as he walked up the stairs. And I waited for the look in his eyes to catch mine. Now listen, my my father loved me. But my father also, as a human, oftentimes, rightfully so, was exasperated with me. Disappointed in me, frustrated with me. And for so long in my life, I believed that as I raised my eyes to the heavens, that if I would catch the glare of my heavenly Father, his eyes would look exasperated and frustrated. 
and disappointed. And Peter says, no. You are his beloved. But then Peter goes on and he tells his audience that as the dearly beloved of almighty and sovereign God, that they should expect suffering. Literally, the fire of trials in their lives. Peter is is trying to help us to connect that as Christ followers, suffering in our lives is not an absence of God's love, but in fact, suffering in our lives is a part of the story of God giving His love to us. Let me say that again. Suffering in our lives is not a sign of the absence of God's love, but in fact is a part of God's love working in and through our lives. To be the beloved and to suffer is not mutually exclusive. In fact, Scripture beyond here tells us that God leads us into, is present in the midst of, and sees us through suffering. So how in the world can that be? How can love allow suffering? How can love even lead us into suffering? And Peter answers, it's so that we might be tested. Now, what is being tested? Peter tells us earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1, what is being tested is our faith. And this is not simply our mental assent to the truth that Jesus was God the Son and Jesus truly died on the cross and he truly rose from the grave. It is that, but it's far more than just a mental agreement. Faith is confidence. Faith is trust. Faith is rest in who God is and what he's done. In, in high school, um, I, I, I was a lifeguard because that was the, the easiest way for me to make money and do something that didn't seem strenuous to me. And as a part of our lifeguarding duties, we had to teach uh, swim lessons. And when you, when you teach swim lessons to little kids, one of the first things that you want to do, really the first thing that you want to do, is you want to get them comfortable in the water. And so we would do these, these exercises where we would take these little kids and we would hold them, we'd have them lay on their back, and we would just tell them, relax. Relax. Trust yourself, trust me, and trust that the water will keep you afloat. And if the kids would simply relax themselves, if they would simply rest on their back, they would float. But nine times out of ten, the kids had no interest in trusting me and no interest in trusting their circumstances of the water or their ability to float. And they would flail and they would panic and they would try and start swimming and they would kick their legs and flail about their arms and they would sink. All they needed to do was relax, trust, rest into the water, and it would keep them afloat. Now listen, trust, our faith, it doesn't produce blessing. Our faith itself does not produce provision or care or love. The Lord produces that, but our faith allows us 
to experience those things. The Lord is testing and refining us and telling us, even in the midst of suffering, rest yourself. Relax yourself into my arms and my hands as I carry you. Peter tells us that the beloved of God are experiencing suffering and trials in order that the Lord himself might refine, strengthen, even perfect our faith, our trust in him. And so here's what I want you to hear about how this identity changes our experience of suffering. Oftentimes in the Christian life and in the church, we we teach something that sounds like this. Because of Jesus, you got a little more oomph in order to get you through suffering. Because of Jesus, you've got a little bit more grit to you, a little bit more power to get you through suffering. You have a little bit more ability to endure suffering. Or maybe we'll say, if you can just get through suffering, there's a a good reward at the end. But our identity as the beloved of God transforms not just our ability to get through suffering, but what suffering is and why it occurs. And because we are the beloved of God, it means that suffering is no longer meaningless. It is meaningful full, and that a loving God is allowing us to be refined and our faith to be increased that we might experience who he truly is. As beloved, it transforms our sufferings. The second identity that transforms our suffering is as a Christian. Peter goes on in verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The term Christian, though, is familiar to us now as the church, is actually one that's used very infrequently in Scripture. Three times in all of Scripture, it's used twice in the book of Acts to describe the church. And once here in 1 Peter are the recipients or the church themselves called Christian. The word Christian combines two A Greek word, Christos, which means the Christ or the anointed one, the the king or the savior, and then a suffix. And that suffix means little. And so Christian quite literally means little Christ. Many scholars believe that it was a derogatory term that was used by Gentiles, thrown at the church calling them little Christ and essentially saying, do you see what happened to your so-called Messiah? He died. And you're little Christ and it's going to happen to you too. But Peter here uses the term not to disparage his readers, but to encourage them. Suffering or the prospect of suffering, reveals who we are and to whom we belong. 
And Peter says that as we suffer, it will show that we truly belong united to our Christ, our Savior, Jesus. He says to us that as we suffer, as a Christian, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. That as we suffer as a Christian united to Christ, that we should rejoice and be glad because when his glory is revealed, it will be revealed for us too. And then Peter also contrasts our identity as one united to Christ to the identity of a murderer or an evildoer or a meddler. Now listen, those, those identities... Part of what he's saying is simply that those identities will bring you suffering. That those who are evildoers or meddlers or murderers will eventually face judgment. They will eventually face suffering. But I also think that Peter is saying that when we refuse to suffer, when we refuse to trust God's story for our life, when we refuse to allow him to choose where we go and what our circumstances look like, we take on different identities. Listen, at the end of the day, a a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler is simply someone who has said I must have my life my way. Things must go to my plans. My desires must be met, and I'm willing to do whatever I need to do to get there. I could put workaholic in this list, and you wouldn't like it, but it would be meaning the same thing. Anytime we take off the identity as one united to Christ, no longer I who live, but Christ in me. I am a slave to Christ, a servant of Christ, the beloved of Christ. I no longer write my own story, but the story of my life is written for me. Whenever we take off that identity, we step into an identity that is apart from Christ, and we do so because we believe that we can find real happiness. We believe that we can fulfill our real desires. We believe that we are enough. We believe that our plans are better and that the story that we could write for our own lives would surpass anything that the Lord would do. Peter says, don't suffer for that. Don't suffer because you have chosen to take yourself away from Christ Jesus. But suffer because you are united to him. Now, why? Why would we be called to, sh- to suffer with Jesus? Well, briefly, there's two reasons. One is that Jesus showed us in his cruciform life that the way to glory is through death. Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He came from eternal glory, emptying himself to the form of human flesh, and from that point submitted himself to the will of the Father, which led him to the cross and death upon it. 
and then even lower to be buried in the grave. And yet from that place, Philippians 2 tells us, in his resurrection, as he ascended to the right hand of the Father, now he is glorified above every other name. And now we are invited, like Jesus, to give our plans and the glory that we think we could give to ourselves or accumulate from others over to the Father. And as Jesus told us, those who will try and save their lives will lose it, but those who willingly lose their life, who give it over to the Lord, they will find that they have been saved and their life will be far more glorious than anything they could grasp for themselves. First, we suffer because that was the shape of Jesus. But second, we suffer with Jesus because something intimately unique occurs when we suffer as a Christ follower with Jesus. Robert and I and Monica and Rachel have, by God's grace, been been knit intimately together. And we've lived life together. We've known each other for well over a decade. Our kids have played. We've, we've gone through ministry. We've planted churches together. And quite honestly, none of those are the primary reason that we find ourselves intimately connected. Primarily, we find ourselves intimately connected because in 2011 and 2012, after a failed adoption, Rachel and I went through one of the most difficult and darkest spiritual seasons that we've had. And Robert and Monica walked with us through it. And then in God's providence, and years later, as Robert and Monica went through a season of deep difficulty, the Lord allowed us to walk with them. Now listen, we didn't walk perfectly with each other. We oftentimes failed to love each other perfectly. And yet, you find out that when you suffer with someone, the relationship that is formed is far deeper than anything that is formed outside of the crucible of suffering. And that is so for us with Jesus. As we suffer and struggle in this life, and as we find that he walks with us, we find that he is perfectly faithful, that he is perfectly good, and that he is always there. We suffer as beloved, and we suffer as Christians united to Christ. We also suffer as the household of God. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Next, Peter uses a collective term for us, the household of God, that doesn't just kind of give us relationship to the Lord, but it it begins to describe how we relate to one another as believers and how we relate to those that are not believers. The, the term household uh, in this context was oftentimes used of, of a king or a ruler to describe his, his family and his descendants, those that his protection and glory and provision would extend to. And Peter says that we are the household of the great king, 
our God. But then he goes on to say that as the household of God, judgment will begin with us. Those who are his descendants, those who are his people, those who are his family. Now, now listen, uh, judgment, it carries a, a negative connotation. Right? Whenever I think of the word judgment, there's typically associated with it shame and guilt, and we immediately conjure up this idea and the thoughts of our sinfulness and inadequacy. It, it makes me think of the, the movie, one of my favorites, A Knight's Tale, in this phrase that they use multiple times in the movie, you have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. This is what comes to mind when we think of the judgment of God, that there is coming a day where the Lord God will say to us, you have been weighed and you have been measured. I see you. I know you. I knew the depths of your heart. I knew those things you wanted to hide from everybody else. And we fear that he will say you have been found wanting. But judgment at the end of the day is simply distinguishing where you truly belong. It's a declaration of who you truly are. And for the household of God, that judgment will be a declaration that we are found innocent and spotless underneath of the covering of Christ Jesus. The judgment for our sins and inadequacy. The place where we ought to have been heard, or where we ought to have heard that we have been found wanting, was already placed on Jesus. And so now the judgment, the distinguishment that we will come to is one where the Lord God himself says, you are mine. But Peter doesn't just say that judgment will occur for us. He says that it will start with us. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome then for those who do not obey the gospel of God or know the good news of Christ Jesus or most simply know Christ? And he goes on and he quotes a proverb. If the righteous is scarcely saved, then what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter is saying that in this present time, it says, since Christ has come and paid the price, all things are now leading to a distinction, a separation of those that are in Christ and those that are found apart for him. For those that are in Christ, suffering and trials are now a part of leading us towards that distinction. Suffering and trials can do nothing but lead us further into the presence of Christ for those who are believers. Or as a pastor, Thabiti, uh, I won't even try and pronounce his last name because I'll butcher it, said one time at a, at a conference when he was talking about suffering, he says, when I get my mind straight about suffering, it would be as if I walked into a door and I looked at my suffering and I said to that suffering, hello, slave, now produce in me the glory that God intends. Peter says that for us in Christ, suffering can only lead us further into his presence and confirm that we truly belong to him. But for those apart from Christ, suffering is not redemptive. 
It doesn't lead towards him, but oftentimes will lead away from him. And so what does this mean for us as the household of God? It means that we ought to see suffering and respond in in a couple distinct ways. One is we should be overwhelmingly grateful for the gift of Jesus. That because of him, all things now work together for our good, and that includes even difficulty in our life. That as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, we are now more than conquerors. We haven't just defeated our enemies, but as more than conquerors, enemies like suffering now have to serve the will of God in our lives to sanctify us, to create in us a clean heart, to to strengthen our faith in Him. We should be overwhelmingly thankful. And then second, we should be overwhelmingly heartbroken for those that do not know the Lord. And, And let me pause because here's what I don't want to do. Listen, I I was raised in the church. Um, I was saved like 45 times at a youth camp and concerts and on Sundays that followed a Saturday where I was out doing things I ought not to do. And it wasn't until I got married in my 20s that the Lord truly got a hold of me and I knew him. I knew his grace was sufficient. I knew his mercy in the depths of my soul. I knew that he was with me and because of Christ that my heavenly father was for me and loved me. And I want you to hear this. Every single one of us suffering. And if you, we all suffer. Like, and if, if, if you can think in your life, I don't know, life's pretty good. Listen, let's just be honest for two seconds. Let's put away the facade of finances or relationship or, or a nice wardrobe or a pretty good reputation or, or good-looking kids or, or whatever else you want. And let's be honest that there are points in our life where our soul feels alone and isolated, where we struggle with shame and guilt, where we don't know what to do with the failures of our past and we fear what might become of us in the future where we constantly feel like we have to prove ourselves to everybody else because if we even for a moment slip up, everybody will finally see that we're not nearly as good, not nearly as desirable, not nearly as beautiful as we want everybody to think. Every single one of us suffers. And I want you to know right now that if in the midst of your suffering you do not have the eyes of a loving father that you can turn to, that if you do not have the hands the nail-scarred hands of a loving Savior to be held by. Stop. Don't go another moment of dealing with that hurt and with that pain and with that confusion and with that isolation and with that loneliness and with that betrayal and with that hurt for even a moment longer. Because suffering will either lead you into an eternal life of great joy in the presence of your creator or suffering is only going to be a foretaste of what our eternity will be apart from him. He and his goodness are the only thing that hold back the flood of difficulty that awaits us. And through Christ, he says, come in. Come out of the storm. 
be covered in my love. And Peter is saying, if those of us in Christ are saved by living through a life that will be marked with sorrows, what will the life and eternity be for those who do not know the Lord and are not covered by his grace? We are the beloved. We are Christians and we are the household of God. And finally, we are creation in the hands of a faithful creator. Peter ends this passage by saying, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter's last reminder comes with a, a clear admonition. He tells us that while we are beloved and Christians united to Christ, and while we make up the household of God, we are also creations, created, meaning that we are not in control. We are not sovereign over the world around us, and thus we must entrust ourselves. Literally, that word means to set down in front of, to give ourselves over to our Creator, who, by the way, Peter reminds us, is faithful and good. There is this wonderful uh, series of, of books that was written in the early 1900s by a, a woman named Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers was a, uh, primarily as an author, was a, a fictional novelist who wrote detective stories. She was also, by the way, one of the first female graduates from Oxford in England. And in the early 1900s, she began to write a series of stories around a character named Lord Peter Whimsey. He was a British aristocrat, but he was also a detective. And he was also single, and his life was, quite honestly, a little bit of a mess. Now, as the, the books and the stories continue, you watch while the professional success of Lord Whimsy increases as he solves crime after crime after crime, and yet you get the sense that personally and emotionally, he's not slowly increasing, but slowly descending. That he slowly struggles more and more. And this continues until finally one day, a new character is introduced in the novels. Margaret, or Harriet Vane is her name. Now Harriet Vane in the novels was a writer, an author of fictional detective stories. And Harriet Vane was also one of the first female graduates from Oxford. She came into Lord Peter Whimsey's life. She married him. She loved him. And through her presence, we see Lord Peter Whimsey's redemption and salvation. Now, many people have put forward the idea that what truly happened is perhaps that as Dorothy Sayers created and wrote the story of the life of Lord Peter Whimsey, that she looked upon him and she began to love him. And seeing him struggle and suffer, she decided the only thing and the best thing that she could do was to write herself into the story. 
and that through writing herself into the story, she would save her beloved that she had created. The Lord God has done the exact same thing. He is our creator, the author of our stories. And as he has written our stories, he has looked upon us and he has loved us. And rather than saving us from a distance, he wrote himself in the person of Jesus into our stories so that he would walk with us, that he would suffer with us, that he would eventually suffer for us, and that through his presence, his love, his grace and mercy and his work, he would save us. Peter finishes this and says that you and I, as creation, our story is not our own, and that can be a terrifying thing. We spend, most of us, our entire lives trying to write our own stories. Right? We say things to our kids like, you can be anything you want to be. Right? Every Disney princess movie is the exact same story. That that. That stuffy old father just doesn't know what's best, so the princess needs to decide for her own and go out and make a better life. Can I just tell you something? I may not be a princess, but that story, it just don't work. I've tried it. Not the princess part, again. (laughs) The other part. It's terrifying to realize that we don't write our own story unless... The author loves us more than we love ourselves. And unless the author so cares about us that he would write himself into our story to experience our difficulty in lostness, our pain, our suffering, our isolation, our betrayal, our difficulty in this life. But if he has, then we can truly entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. Beloved, listen and hear this. We all suffer. All of us. Some of you right now are suffering at the hands of a broken world. You're suffering illness or loss or turmoil or depression or anxiety or isolation. Some of you are suffering at the hands of broken people. You've been sinned against. And that sin has been devastating. It's hurt and it's harmed. And some of you are suffering at the hands of your own sin. But through your own choices and actions, through your own failings and inadequacies, you are suffering. And here's what I need you to hear. Regardless of why you are suffering, beloved, your father sees it. And he doesn't just see it. He promises that nothing, including suffering, has ever occurred that has not passed through his hands. He is in control even in the midst of it. And not just that. He's promised to use it for good. And yet, probably best of all, he's with you in the midst of it. 
He walks with you. He carries you. He invites you to experience his love and his great mercy. Suffering is hard. But our Father is good. Let's pray.